So let's be honest, we are all getting that somewhat better at dealing with the days that the World Cup isn't on. But just in case you're not, we've plenty of World Cup chat to come as we build up to the semi-finals of the competition, which get underway tomorrow. Paul Corrie is going to join me in studio in just a moment. If you've got thoughts on the events of the weekend or the destination of... Is it still called the Gilles Rimet Trophy or did they update that after the one that the dog lost in... No, the dog found the trophy that was lost in England. Yeah, whatever it is they call it, if you've got thoughts on the destination of that fine big lump of gold uh, text us 51552 is our number in addition to that we will reflect shortly uh, on what has been a mixed weekend from an Irish perspective in the Heineken Champions Cup in particular and plenty of silverware uh, coming home on the flight this evening as the successful Irish Euro cross country team uh, return to Ireland plenty for us to get stuck into between now and 7 o'clock as mentioned 51552 is our text number you can tweet the programme as well at game on 2 fm Game on on 2FM. How are you? Paul? Very good. Yeah, Jesus, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, like, I, I, like, yeah, well, like, you know, helps, Neil. Sorry. I'm, I'm getting texts off. Um, obviously, Conan Byrne is the uh, the expert on the Gilles Rimet trophy. It was a dog called Pickles who found it, and he found it under a hedge. There you go. Yeah. Now, you see, it could be disingenuous to suggest that Conan's probably old enough to have been. Uh, <laughs> Maybe a bit before my time. And yeah. to fair to Conan, he's a bit of a Moroccan football expert as well. I heard him on, on the show last week talking about, uh, you know, just them coming into the competition and, and the foundations that they've laid in Moroccan football. So, uh, yeah, maybe one for for the niche questions is Conan. Um, listen, there is an awful lot of elements to this World Cup that are not right. And there is an awful lot. It will be a World Cup that you kind of hope will be a moment in time where FIFA perhaps I'm somewhat naive will look at where they bring football how they treat football and how they interact with aspects of society and aspects of regimes which fall short of what is the general accepted view in pure footballing terms though it has been one of the best that I have enjoyed in quite some time. That's been superb and it's probably had an element of everything from upsets and surprises and, and no better example of Morocco to the sprinkler stardust with, with Messi and, and some of the pieces that he's produced in, in the lead up to the semi-finals. Brazil dumped out from Croatia, the penalty shootouts, the drama of the English game against France the other night. It's had absolutely everything and, and the football has been superb to watch. Um, just even the different styles of play that, that we've seen and I'm, I'm sure Damien over the course of the semi-finals and the finals we'll, we'll certainly see a bit more of that yeah and like the thing about it is there's very strong cases to be made for all four teams like, I mean we're going to get stuck into this in greater detail later you would be inclined to think if France turn up and play to potential it's going to be very difficult to beat them Morocco have absolutely no pressure on their shoulders whatsoever they're living the high life and have massively exceeded expectation already um, we all maybe overhyped Brazil last week and then they eventually came up against a greater challenge and were knocked out could we be saying the same thing about Argentina against a Croatia team that it's like you know the old dog for the hard road so it's like I know it's one of those terrible cliches of all cliches at this stage of a tournament of this scale but it is all still to play for it is and, and I'm sure everybody expects that it will be an Argentina-France final but I mean I, I probably gave Morocco no hope going into that Portugal game I, I just thought that mentally and physically they would have been drained from from the Spanish game and, and the, the depths that they had to go there the concentration that they would have had to, to to give to that game and how heavy their legs would have been and then they've gone and produced it again and, and the way they go about playing the style of football that they have it requires such deep levels of concentration 
you switch off for one moment of time and you get punished but they seem to be very disciplined in their approach they seem to have a great understanding of what it is they're able to do and they're so capable of counter-attacking that if they were to go one nil hell against France they've shown in previous mm-hmm. games and in group stages and, and in the knockouts that they're capable of, of, of kind of holding on to those leads and, and on the other side of things Croatia and their experience and know-how in the middle of the pitch everybody keeps talking about it that has been enough to get to them semi-finals there's a serious case that they could go and, and they could produce it against Argentina and go to the final again so we could be talking in a couple of days time about a Morocco-Croatia final but I mean if you're looking at, at the players that are at the disposal of Argentina and France you would expect that they would be the two teams Now if you were to go through your phone do you have a litany of screenshots of text messages and whatsapps you've received of former teammates lauding how great you are as a teammate? <laughs> Have you seen I know this, where you're going with this. Seen the story about Neymar. So obviously, Brazil, who start out in all of these competitions expecting to win, have been knocked out of the competition by Croatia on penalties. In case you haven't been keeping up, um, Neymar, who equals Pele's record of 77 international goals, has taken to Instagram as players tend to do now, and has shared a load of messages sent to him from like Rodrigo, Thiago Silva, Silva, uh, Marquinhos, uh, like basically lauding how great a player you are. Like you know we are so lucky to play with you and you are the gel that brings this entire team together and you're inclined to think to yourself the entire nation is in mourning put away your phone you langer and stop sending us messages where they, like what is he possibly thinking he will achieve uh, by publishing these private correspondence he's sniffing himself isn't he and he, and he always seems to and it probably shouldn't surprise us you know he seems to to love to indulge himself on the pitch and, and it's probably no different off the pitch like some of the the comments that he's shared from from the likes of, of Rodrigo's missed a penalty and Marquinhos has missed a penalty it's almost saying you know almost an apologetic um, shape and form to Neymar as you know sorry that I've caused this and, and mm. sorry that I've restricted you from, from moving on to the final and what a great player you are and you were my idol so it's, um, it's a very very strange all, all well and good to have it in a WhatsApp group but to then go and put it out to the public I find very but, bizarre uh, like, and if anything you know you look around that squad the one man that you'd really be saying the guy we wanted to win it for would be the likes of like a Danny Alves who like has done so much for that squad and looked after himself to the extent that he did not this upstart who spends half his time rolling around when the going gets tough or am I being overly critical it, it could be one of the flaws of maybe the Brazilian squad you know the, the leaders in that team for me are very much Marquinhos and Thiago Silva maybe there is a case that they gave Neymar too much of a, of a pedestal and, and put him up there and, and maybe played for him a little too often and at times he didn't produce I love him as a footballer I think he's he's incredible but when his head is in the right place when it's in the right place now there's there's a time and a space to give Neymar his moment maybe they gave him and they played for him too much um, and yes you're right in saying that, that the real leaders the likes of your Daniel Alves and Thiago Silva they're the kind of the players that you want to be relying on and maybe they're the people who get you through difficult moments and maybe that's that's an Achilles heel that they, they had that you know maybe they're, they're giving too much to the likes of Neymar and those texts that he shared yeah. would, would start to suggest that that may have been the case but if you want to text Paul and I and tell us how great you think we are five one five five two is our number. You can tweet us as well at Game on Two FM. You can slide into our DMs. Just all positive feedback is greatly appreciated. Make us feel better about ourselves between now and seven o'clock. Paul's going to stay with us. We're going to chat uh, more about the semi-finals and the nuts and bolts of the games uh, later on in the program. But we're going to begin tonight by reflecting on the opening weekend of the 28th season of uh, club rugby pan-European club rugby. Stephen Ferris uh, is with us. We're going to be joined by Johnny Holland as well in a few moments. Uh, Stephen, how are you? Yeah, not too bad. Thanks, Damien. Um, do you want to get Ulster out of the way first, or will we leave that? The demolition job. Um, yeah, very disheartening. Jeez, I'll tell you what. I thought uh, after the, the week before against Leinster, obviously the second half capitulation, 
Um, I was expecting a bit of a reaction, like, and then all of a sudden you get the game time, you hear there was a flight delay, they didn't get in until early that morning. Um, I think there, there was a, a lot of messing around when it came to the travel situation, and you were just like, geez, it's, it's a one o'clock kickoff, you know, this is going to be it's going to be tight and when you have those those circumstances usually it's just in the top four or five inches like it's about just getting your head around it and making sure that you perform and we all know like everybody has been talking all throughout over the last couple of seasons we all know they've got good pedigree half decent players maybe lacking a little bit in strength and depth and that was maybe exposed a little bit against Seal however they usually turn up in, in, in bigger games and did not even register a point on the board. Um, I think it's 70 points, 70 points to seven after the first half against Leinster. So 120 minutes for rugby. That is you know, really, really concerning. I'm sure Don McFarland and maybe more importantly, Johnny Bell, the Ulster defence coach, will be uh, you know, reviewing that mm. game against Seal because it was very, very disappointing. Just, I don't want to use it as an excuse. But just from a former player's perspective, and you know, I, I've had the benefit of, of working in the tunnel in the Aviva Stadium and you watch teams arrive and everything is timed down to the second virtually from the kickoff of the game backwards. So the Irish rugby team arrived 90 minutes pre-game and they literally, from the minute the handbrake goes on the bus, they know what's happening between then and kickoff. You know, a couple of years ago, the Irish bus drove halfway around Edinburgh on the way to um, a game at Murrayfield and, you know, Joe Smith afterwards pointed to it as being disruptive in advance of the game. It's not an ideal situation, but from a player's perspective, in reality, how upsetting can that be to the routine and, you know, just the natural flow of game day? Yeah, it's it's not ideal. I suppose if Ulster had a beaten Leinster last week and confidence was flying high, it probably wouldn't have mattered as much but because because of the early kickoff, um, you know, then then your meal schedule goes out the window. Um, you know, the boys are probably eating grub on the flight on the way over. Um, you know, you look at some of the guys in there aren't exactly in the best form. The likes of Stockdale, Hume, even Young Doak and, and Billy Burns are really struggling for form. O'Toole, uh, a tight head. You know, he was obviously starting ahead of Marty Moore. And then you have these guys who aren't aren't flying high and don't have much confidence in themselves at the minute then the last thing they need is a travel disruption you know, yeah. they, they want everything to go plain sail and they want everything to run like clockwork yeah. and it didn't and it, uh, it just didn't um, and you, know, you can forgive them for being sloppy for the first 15 or 20 minutes of the game and finding their mojo and getting their rhythm but they folded they folded like a deck chair and uh, I, uh, you know for that to happen two weeks in a row is not ideal yeah, and the issue now is but the, this weekend. yeah, well, come here. You've led me on to my next point. The issue now is you you arrive back to Belfast Sunday evening, Monday morning, whenever it is. You turn the page in the diary and you see La Rochelle, the champions of Europe, coming to Belfast Saturday evening. And you know, so much was made, and understandably so, by coaches and players alike of this massive, intense nine or ten week block that they were starting into after the international break, like. It's it's very dangerous for a rut to set in, and that appears to be the situation that Ulster could find themselves in if things were to go badly wrong on Saturday. And let's be honest, if you go two losses from two for your opening two games in Europe, it's very, very difficult to see a salvage something in advance post-Christmas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know better than most in the, in the game, the fickle game of, of professional rugby, is that like things can turn on their head in... As, as Ulster season at the minute in 120 minutes of rugby and um, they lose this weekend all of a sudden they've got a way, a way to Connacht who obviously had a good win 
against Newcastle at the weekend. Then, of course, they're, uh, I've got Munster. So, like, all of a sudden, you lose this weekend, you're you're not looking forward to the next game. <laughs> yeah. like, you know, you're, you're sort of apprehensive. And Dan McFarlane's got to rally the troops. You know, this is when you earn your corn. Uh, you know, when head coaches, it's all brilliant when you're when you're winning every week and things are playing sailing but when your back's against the wall you got to come out fighting and that's something that, I, that I've admired about Graham Rowntree uh, you know when they were in their bit of a rut at the start of the season and didn't have many players at their disposal that they gal- you know, galvanised together and you know somehow uh, put a, a four or five good games together uh, and unfortunately I know we'll touch on it it didn't happen for them just the way they would have liked against Toulouse but you know Ulster have got to find that fight so how difficult a week then is it from a coach's perspective this week to get that balance right because presumably you know the the physical and tactical preparation will look after itself the messaging around a fixture this week and around what's gone on the last two weeks one would presume then is is the key aspect in it all yeah it is um for me team selection has been a little bit iffy um especially they're starting like tom O'Toole. unfortunately for him like he he got absolutely destroyed in the scrum. Um, you know, loose head on the bench. You know, Rory Sutherland is looking like he's going to be back this weekend against La Rochelle. You know, Henderson's out injured, so Dan McFarland's hands are tied a little bit, especially with Cooney as well. But you know, young Marshall in the centre has been probably Ulster's best player this season, and he hasn't got a look in the last couple of weeks because Hume's back fit. But Hume is really struggling for form, as is Stockdale. Like Stockdale limped off again. Um, everybody has. He's, his ambitions of going to the Rugby World Cup but he's got to get himself fit and play a run a game so yeah this week is, is very tough for a coach um, he's got to find something in his players and the team selection will, will hopefully bring the best out in some of the guys and you know, it might even be just a bit of a left field choice somebody who's been performing really well in training you see Lencer do it the odd time in a big game with a full pack and uh, you know the number one halfbacks and see how they go but it needs, there needs to be a bit of a shake up yeah, and and then the fact as well that not only La Rochelle in terms of their status in the competition, uh, you know they got off to the ideal start, a bonus point win at home to Northampton, and knowing you know Ronan, I know I like to think I know Ronan relatively well. You know him far better than I do, but he will have the messaging bang on this week, and he will have something up his sleeve to, you know, remind people of his existence. Need they to be reminded when he gets to Belfast this Saturday evening? Yeah, definitely. Like you don't have to play too much rugby against Ulster to hurt them. And I think that's where many teams fall fall down. You look at that Leinster second half performance last week, coming around the corner, coming around the corner, just eating them up, dominating them physically. And La Rochelle have the players to do that. They don't need to play this wide, expansive throw up with the width in the Kingspan Stadium, give the crowd something to cheer about. When they're 15 or 20 points up, they can think about doing that. But, you know, set piece is huge. Ulster scrum is, is under huge pressure. Their mall didn't work. Um, against Seal which is a big weapon for them and, and they don't really seem to have a plan B when that doesn't go well so um, yeah it's a huge week uh, and I fully expect La Rochelle to keep it tight and go after them physically OK stay with us for a second uh, Stephen if you would this is going to turn into a psychologist's um, um, conference room for a second Johnny Holland is with us as well how are you doing Johnny? Not too bad, Damien. How are you? Not too bad. Good to talk to you. We've um, we've Ulster put to bed. From a Munster perspective, like Graeme Rowntree, remarkably positive, albeit after an 18-13 defeat. But, you know, the, the message seemed to be there but for one or two areas being executed differently. This would have been a different story against one of the best teams in Europe. So, you know, what's what's your assessment of where Munster are at and where, where Europe is at for them after the opening weekend? Yeah, like I think that's a bit of perception, isn't it? That you know you say you're that close, but I think Toulouse were 
a couple of gears off their best and I think they didn't have to be at their best you know so they, they just put the onus back on Munster and made Munster play and you know Munster didn't really have the, the firepower for them even though they'd be frustrated because I think it, was, it looked like at the start it was going to be one of those typical Munster European weekends you know and they were going to take a big scalp um, they seemed to be going forward in the contact the breakdown was working they were getting things slightly easier than you would have expected but um, you know Toulouse were able to I think when Toulouse are, are so dominant no one's going to be questioning their game plan they just kicked the ball back at Munster and kind of set themselves up you know if Munster went out and did that and had kind of a, a more negative game plan and, and got a result out of it people would nearly have said yeah we got to win but there's nothing for the future you know so mm. I think when you're in a dominant position like Toulouse where you're, you're allowed to leave the other team play play the game and then kind of pick them up on their mistakes but you know Munster got a small bit looser their breakdown started to get a bit messier and Toulouse got their um got their pitch positions and you know it's very very hard to stop a team with that power when they get into those positions but I think Munster gave it up quite cheaply at the start of that second half and obviously you saw the conditions it got more difficult from there you know Yeah and, and just that, that whole momentum suck at the start of the second half when, when you know you effectively give them a very very soft try it, it just I, I'm sure in a player's perspective like that everything that has been spoken about for the 12 minutes at half time does it largely go out the window straight away? Oh, you, you feel deflated sometimes don't you like you speak about things and I heard Graham Rountree speaking about the fact that you know that 60 minute mark was going to be a result depending on the weather you know so I'd say having dealt with that at half time and having spoken about it you know you need to be the team to go on the charge you need to start well as they did in the first half in fairness to them um, and then you know you get a small bit of the pot magic with the with the, the strength of the, the Toulouse pack and all of a sudden you are standing there as a player kind of thinking who's going to get us out of this hole you know so when you're up against such a big team with power with halfbacks like they have you know you do need someone to kind of step up and just you know when someone gets you up the pitch a bit of a line break out of nowhere and it just didn't look like a, a game we were going to get that mm. um, you know maybe Lebo in the past or something like that yeah. you know they weren't they weren't getting it so it does it does deflate you a small bit and that kind of dictated the rest of the game uh, yeah and now we look at it and again like I'm not I'm not sure like how either of you feel about the structure of the competition I, I, I'm kind of lament the old the absence of the old pools the way they were but you look at, at Munster away to Northampton next weekend Munster obviously got a losing bonus point Northampton have a duck egg after the opening weekend Northampton like midway point in the Premiership table, the, the, the home and away, or sorry, the away and home now for Munster against Northampton is crucial because you're effectively hoping that they're almost eliminated from the competition after next weekend, in the hope that it gives you that springboard in January. So again, similar to to Ulster, Munster, there is zero level for failure this weekend. And I'm like you, I, I like the old structure. Like I don't know, it's just because of what we're used to or change isn't great for me but I, I liked it it was traditional it was you know you knew what was happening and we know what's happening as well but you know when you're here at the start of the competition or you lose your first home game and you're in trouble and it just doesn't really add any momentum to the to the competition but at the same time I don't think it's past months or two off to Northampton and get one of their results um, and then get into a bit more control coming back into the, the other end of the return fixtures but they still need to go to Toulouse like you know so it's it's going to be an uphill battle definitely the the new structure it's always going to be tough but you know you can see Munster getting a result there actually I like uh, like some of what Northampton do I like they've got playmakers all over the place when they play Hutchinson at 12 uh, Furbank at, at 15 it's kind of like what Munster ended up with uh, with Jack Crowley at 12 and Haley at 15 so could be very similar but um, I don't see any of the two of those teams having the same firepower as to lose or the other end of the, the top tier in, in Europe Fez just, just on the structure and just on the status of the competition like mentioned at the outset it's the 28th year of European club competition and 
you know, we've had so many tweaks in the last couple of years. Obviously, the South African clubs coming in this year. We had the double conference structure brought in a couple of years ago with the French and English a year or two before that, where we weren't sure whether they were going to commit to it or give it, you know, send reserve teams or effectively dummy teams out in the competition. Like, has the status of the competition suffered somewhat in recent years, or are we overly nostalgic for? What were the glory days when, you know, we had Munster winning two and Leinster winning a host of them in quick succession? Yeah, I'd probably agree with you that we're over-nostalgic. Um, I think anybody I speak to, especially young people watching the game now, they're super excited about seeing the South African teams coming in, you know, watching their, their guy, Manny Labak, who come on for the South Africa and change the game. Like, you know, this is the audience that's now watching it. And I'm sort of like you, lads. I sort of love the the old nostalgic heritage of, you know, the Heineken Champions Cup or the European Heineken Cup as, a, as we sort of know it. But it's it's just a bit weird because Ulster play Seal and then Ulster play La Rochelle, but Seal are playing Toulouse. Mm. Like, you know, next week. So it, it's sort of the whole group thing um, where you have your three teams that you know, you know you're going to be playing against, you know your opposition, you do your analysis, kind of build tension through the group stage. That's, that's sort of lost a little bit but I think the competition will really come to life when it gets to the quarterfinal stage and um, you know I suppose that's what puts the pay the pound signs behind broadcasters uh, is when it gets to those knockout stages and you know the whole world's tuning in to watch so yeah I think it's I think it's going to be an interesting couple of years but for me I, I like a little bit of change but maybe there's been too many tweaks in recent years mm. yeah like jo- Johnny there is that sense that it just needs a little bit of consistency now where we get a, a season or two knowing it's going to be as it is for a season or two rather than some other revolution somewhere along the way absolutely like I mean, we're we're obviously watching a lot of games and we're into it and you're still trying to figure out who's playing who and you have to look it up nearly every time you know you can you can nearly not keep that amount of pictures in your head you know so for more of the armchair supporters or people who casually watch it it's going to be a little bit hard to get it into your head until it gets some consistency so like I definitely think you know like Stephen said there you know it's, um, we, we do need some change but we need some consistency with that change so we can get used to um, the structures of it to kind of really look forward to it again you know but like <laughs> you do you do need to keep keep changing and roll with the times as well yeah. but um, yeah we definitely need to know what's coming next yeah before we start sounding like three cranky elfas lamenting the good the good old days um, Stephen Leinster you know you, you talk about setting out markers and laying down the tempo for the season ahead like obviously there's a final looming in the Aviva come next May and you know, you, you talk about a business-like approach to a game. Leinster certainly showed that in the match against Racing. Yeah, they did, and their big players stood up. Like Keelan Doris was unbelievable. Um, you know, Josh van der Fleer again, great game. John knew Johnny Sexton, but Ross Byrne played very well. Good kicking game, and Gary Ringrose. I thought he was the man of the match. Doris ended up getting it, but Gary Ringrose is just playing some of the best rugby of his career captain in the team um, and you know they were ruthless they really were ruthless James Lowe looked like he you know, got his form back pretty quickly he looked a bit ropey against Ulster uh, the week before but um, really really good to watch <clears throat> however Racing were a joke mm. like their mall defence was was like schoolboy stuff um, I just couldn't believe what I was watching like it was really really poor Lencer got uh, big dominance in the scrum as well Al Alatoa had a really good game and, and if there was an area that you thought Racing might come after uh, Leinster it would have been at scrum time but they negated that very very well and um, you know I think Racing were out the gate after about 
30 minutes at the game and it was pretty easy for Leinster onwards and you know Finn Russell as well um, obviously he's not going to be hanging about at Racing next year but you know, didn't control the game well whatsoever so yeah brilliant by Leinster but also very very poor from Racing yeah, and, and Johnny, just on that, irrespective of, of what team it is, just that sense of the way the structure is, and we're talking about the pressure on squads and everything else over the course of the next couple of weeks, like Leinster, no doubt, have set out to get 10 points from the opening two games. They've got Gloucester at the RDS on Friday evening, which you'd imagine a Friday this close to Christmas is going to be a fairly raucous affair, irrespective of what competition it is. And it just gives them the benefit of getting that footing in the pool so early that you can then get to the situation in January where you can chop and change if you need to. Absolutely, but they're they're doing what they've always done now again. You know, they're they're absolutely in the uh, in control. You know, and. I think that's the kind of um, you get these psychological questions when you when you see the fixtures we're, we're away first or we're home first and can you sit at home and get four or five points and drive on and build momentum or can you do what Leinster have done and go away take on the challenge even with the, the logistical nightmare that they had take on that challenge get your win and then come back home and try and get a second win to put you in full control you know so I don't think we're, we're that surprised but mm-hmm. you know like Stephen said Racing weren't great but at the same time you know, we weren't saying that beforehand. We were still talking about their firepower and what they were capable of doing. You know, so Leinster just have that ability to make teams look ordinary. And maybe when you when you when you face Leinster starting the way they did, three penalties conceded by Rasting and, and Leinster go seven 0 up. You know, it's a uh, it's a long way to come back and, yeah. and kind of turn psychology around. But yeah, Le- Leinster, Leinster doing what Leinster tend to do. Yeah. Um, and Stephen, just a, a final question: um, the Challenge Cup. As much as we talk about the. Um, you know the complexity of the Champions Cup and where it sits and how it's going to play out and everything else. The Challenge Cup is is a, a rare beauty because you really have no idea how any team in the competition is going to approach it in the context of their overall season. Um, Connacht a really good footing in the game. They look to follow up, or sorry, a really good footing in the competition. Twenty two eight win over Newcastle. They look to follow that up um, away to Breathe this weekend. And in a way, when the URC hasn't quite started the way you want it to start, is this almost manna from heaven that you have this? competition where you can go out try and get a few wins and use that then as the springboard for a bit of positive momentum to bring back into your domestic competition yeah definitely and I think for Andy Friend it's it's a great opportunity for him to give players game time that maybe haven't seen it in the URC the likes of Dooley uh, Tiernan Martin Hurley Langton uh, Hawkshaw who started at 10 obviously Adam Byrne who we haven't seen much of this season the, the big signing from Leicester scored a crack and try um, and yeah, you have other teams like Toulon, Bristol, Glasgow, uh, I think the think Bath are even in Connacht's group as well. So there's teams there that have got a lot of quality. Um and you know, I, I think Connacht are really gonna target this game this weekend away to Breathe here sitting rock bottom of the, the top fourteen with only a couple of wins. So um yeah, it's it, it's perfect for, for Andy Friend when you know, guys need game time and he can also throw the likes of Hawkshaw and attend to see how he copes in the, in the big European matches and uh, listen uh, it, for me it doesn't matter if you're a fan if it's a you know a, a big team that come to play at your home ground you're going to go and watch them and it's you know the, the Challenge Cup or the Ch- Heineken Champions Cup it's it's always a big talking point you always get a good crowd you always get a good atmosphere so uh, and it'll be brilliant down at the sports ground over the next few weeks and um, you know hopefully Connacht can go well in the competition Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time as always. Uh, Stephen Ferris and Johnny Holland with us there. 51552. Uh, for your text, we are going to reflect on a very successful weekend from an Irish perspective at the European Cross Country Championships in two minutes. Stay with us. Game on on 2FM.
And you're very welcome back to the programme. We are going to chat athletics next and Carl Dennehy uh, joins us. Carl, how are you? I'm very good. How are you? Not too bad. Now, listen, a little, well, I was going to say one of Santa's little helpers, one of Damien's little radio helpers outside the window has said, by the way, he's in the sudden tip of Chile. What in the name of God are you doing <laughs> on the sudden tip of Chile 13 days before Christmas? I'm essentially on the run. I'm not wanted in Ireland. No, I'm yeah. actually... Uh, Sorry, we, we've given the Revenue Commissioners your details. <laughs> Good to hear. Um, there's a bit of an adventure happening in the next few days, organised by an Irishman, Richard Donovan, who organises the Antarctic Ice Marathon. And thankfully, he gave me the chance. I was over doing a bit of backpacking in the last couple of months in this part of the world, and it wasn't too far to come down. And Sean Tobin, one of the best Irish distance runners of recent year, is going to run his first marathon. And because he's helped out and sponsored by Richard Donovan runner adventure racer he's going to make it the Antarctic Ice Marathon which I suppose on the surface is a bit of fun but Sean Tobin at some point weather permitting in the next two to three days will be bundled up in all sorts of layers and running a marathon across Antarctica the fastest ever it's been done is three and a half hours and I know that Sean is eyeing up the three hour barrier all going well so it should be good fun to follow and good fun to write about so we, we could have an Irish world record um, on Christmas week so is it? Is it? It's, it's not one of these so obviously it's not a situation where there is like a fixed start it's a case of let's wait and see how the conditions are and pull the trigger when it's right to pull the trigger it very much is I'm staying in the hotel here alongside Sean and he we were planning and hoping to fly today but that very much got put off because uh, it's a very specific weather station it's about four hour flight from the very bottom of Chile it's deep into Antarctica and it's such specific local weather that they literally will not take off or land unless it's 100% safe so we're stuck here for another day or two possibly three and at some point this week we'll be heading over there and he'll be taking on 26 miles Sorry now I, I, we do have you on to talk about the cross countries but I am absolutely fascinated by this so we could do the programme on this so sorry Right, right, give me the logistics now. You're going into barren Antarctica. So do they have to go set up a start point, set up an end point and then let them off? Or is it all there? Like, is there a team of people there ready to go? Uh, no, I'll happily talk about this. There is a camp set up and a lot of people who go on adventures in Antarctica stay in those kind of two-person tents. And funnily enough, Will Smith is actually down there, the actor at the moment, and he's stuck there because of the bad weather and uh, is trying to get back to where we are, Punta Arenas. But what happens is there's a 10-kilometer looped course that has been kind of flattened out, I guess. Okay. And it's kind of dried snow and ice and it's quite, you know, it's crunchy underfoot, I suppose, like a lot of people at home are experiencing the last few days running around the parks it's kind of like that surface but it's about minus 5 to minus 10 it can get down to minus 20 and the wind chill can make it feel like minus 30 so there'll pretty much be zero part of maybe Sean Tolman's nose might be the only part that's exposed to the air when he does run and you fly in when you get the weather and then you do maybe a quick practice run on the course and there's about 60 competitors in total the field is capped at that and Sean I'd say is the most elite athlete who's ever come down to do it obviously it's kind of people with a few spare dollars who are trying to tick a bucket list item and a lot of people who want to run seven marathons and seven continents this is where they do it um, at Richard Donovan's race so it'll be very exciting to see what happens when a very high level elite distance runner takes on the the wild of Antarctica One more question I promise Um, like the the intriguing aspect of this is like like Richard Donovan there is the most phenomenal book or documentary in his life story and some of the challenges that he has taken on and has facilitated over the last couple of years but it would beg the question how in the name of all that is sacred do you train or prepare for conditions which are completely unique to anything else that you would see anywhere on the planet 
Yeah, I think you don't really. I mean, I think, you know, I was up with Sean yesterday and we were getting kitted out. Me, I was getting kitted out just for standing around. He was obviously getting gear checked and kitted out for doing the actual challenge. And yeah, I think it's just layering. And Richard, having run many, he ran once for 100 hours in Antarctica, you know, was the perfect man to be offering advice and giving him specific advice on how to layer up and which, which things will protect you and which won't. And, you know, you have to wear sunglasses because the glare off the sun and the snow is pretty much blinding. And that does happen to a lot of people. They can get disoriented so yeah he's got the perfect man in his corner and Richard Donovan who has been all around the world and done all sorts of crazy adventures and and thankfully for Sean at a time when Sean was kind of coming back from injury and wouldn't have been participating in the European cross country this looked like the perfect time to do this thing and you know he has the kind of time and he's back healthy okay. and he will be taking a crack at the Paralympics but all that will come next year he'll be running a big city marathon and trying to qualify this is kind of more of a, a bit of fun and a bit of challenge while he's on the way back this is brilliant okay right now we will actually get you on we'll get you talking about what it is we've got you commissioned to talk about um, the European cross country championships uh, in Italy over the weekend the Irish team to the best of my knowledge in the air on the way home and just continuing what has been a massively impressive vein of form in this competition and, and a reminder to people as if it was needed of the depth of athletics talent that is at the disposal of this country yeah and I think you know I was even talking to Phelan Kelly a coach of a lot of the athletes in the last couple of days and we were saying like the European cross country is um, an event that Ireland should really be targeting you know in terms of it's it's an event we've proven we can kind of get success at and the level is not unrealistic in terms of the way medals might be unrealistic at global level or world cross country level it's an event we've traditionally done well in but we're doing better and better in it really every year you know 2019 was the best edition previously Ireland won four medals there but five five yesterday over in Italy and to be honest it could easily have been seven or eight you know you had Sarah Healy had horrendous luck um, she was probably on course for a bronze medal at the time she sustained an injury late in the race Darren McElhenney probably got the pacing a bit wrong he admitted that himself but he was another man who could easily have got an individual podium and you know there was obviously the mixed relay underperformed as well that was a team that on paper could have won a medal but still obviously you can't talk negatively about it when they've got a record medal hall of five medals and I think what's extremely promising is that for the first time in a long time on the men's side both at under 23 and especially at junior level you've got this very 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 special crop of young teenage male distance runners coming through led of course by the, the brilliant Nick Riggs who won two silver medals yesterday and but you know th- this is as the result of work that has gone on in recent years talent identification and the exposure of these athletes to the highest level of competition and race available to them in order to help them progress along the way. Yeah, I think there's a lot more athletes. I think Irish athletes are just doing things a bit more professionally perhaps than they were years before and there's a lot better coaching. There's a lot more upskilling of the knowledge amongst your average, both your average Irish club coach on a, you know, twice a week on Tuesday and Thursday night, but also your kind of elite level coaches. They're getting a lot more international experience and, you know, we have a group of Irish coaches. Now, granted, they're still doing it in an amateur capacity, but they're a group that you would hold up, you know, with any other nation in terms of the expertise and the way they're guiding this kind of very special crop of young athletes and I think actually COVID as bad as it was in a sense helped a lot of athletes because it very much simplified their lives all the working from home and studying from home thing kind of allowed a lot of kind of a generation of athletes to simplify their lives there wasn't much social life there wasn't much distractions and burdens from career or academics whereby they had this long period of kind of consistent training I think that is perhaps even showing up in a lot of them now with these Mm. performances But are, are the logistics in place or the ability in place then to harness that talent and drive it on further as 
the world returns to relative normality and the ability to focus perhaps a little bit more on athletics might be diluted somewhat for some. Yeah, well, I think I think this is unfortunately the, the the story of Irish athletics since the year dot. You know, to succeed as a distance runner, sprinting is obviously different. You tend to mature and peak in your early twenties, but as a distance runner, you know, I suppose the majority of us are not like the Inga Brixons in Norway. They're not like the Africans where you're running high mileage from like the age of eight or ten. It does take about ten years of high level training to peak as a distance runner. So we have always had really good people at under twenty, under twenty three level, under eighteen level. But the problem is, can you keep them in the sport and can support them long enough to still be training at a high level throughout their mid-20s and you know I think the big issue for Ireland is that people are well supported through school they're well supported through college but then they get to the age of 22, 23 and the pressure comes on whether it's from their families their boyfriends or girlfriends Mm. or from society in general to go out into the working world and do that long days with commuting on top of it and it's very very difficult to train at a high level and balance that these days so I think that's where we really need to see support now it's just kind of the 22 to 26 period and then they can reach their peak yeah, just um, I want to talk to you about the, the women's team in a moment, but just but before we do, um, just like Nick Griggs, when the dust settles and it comes time to reflect on the race yesterday, it's going to be an agonising watch for him. And, and maybe that's the element of experience at play where, you know, you, you simply don't have a look over your shoulder and give the fella behind you the opportunity to even get the psychological advantage over you when you're in the closing stages. Is, does he have to reflect on a, a Listen, to win a silver medal is phenomenal, but does he have to reflect on a, a goal that perhaps he lets slip away? I think so, yeah. I mean, I think he would admit that himself. The goal slipped away. And I think, you know, we were kind of debating, was it the look around? Was it the uneven ground? Or was it that his legs were going? And I think, to be honest, it's probably a combination of all the three was why he stumbled and why he he did end up losing that gold medal. But again, like you said, you can't detract as well from the quality of performance. And he absolutely, like there was a horde of athletes behind him who had broken European under 20 records this year at like 5,000 metres, you know, 3,000 metres. And he didn't just beat them. He had absolutely dusted them to 99% of the way in that race to the finish line and he's underage again next year for the under 20 race so I I think to repeat what we've all been saying for a little over a year now he is the most exciting distance runner to emerge you know since Kieran McGeehan and beyond you know he he is a very 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 special talent and I think he learned an important lesson and much better to learn it at the age of 17 as he is now than have to learn it at 21 or 22 when perhaps he's competing in a world or Olympic game world championships or Olympic games Um, Just a word on on the women's team Um, you know there's six smiling faces looking out from the homepage on the RT Sport website yesterday but for for me the image of yesterday was the TV coverage and Anne-Marie McGlynn going absolutely apoplectic when she realised that they'd got over the line and her story is a phenomenal story of you know seizing the opportunity whenever it comes to you in life and never really giving up on either the dream or the talent that you have at your disposal yeah, I mean, Anne-Marie McLean, she's one of the great stalwarts of Irish athletics and she came back to the sport so late. And I suppose like Sinead Diver down under is really showing that, you know, age is just a number if you're sensible about your preparation. And, you know, it was the most heartbreaking story in Irish athletics last year when Anne-Marie McLean just missed out on the Olympics by a matter of seconds on her final attempt in April before the Olympics at qualification. And I think a lot of athletes, she has a family, you know, she has a career at that point might have said, right, that's the end of an Olympic cycle. This is the time to walk away. But she just loves it. And I think yesterday, you know, while she was just the fourth scorer, it was, wasn't the official score. By, by being in there and beating athletes from other nations, you obviously affect their scoring and that helped the Irish team into that bronze medal. And I mean, that was one of the 
best and most deserved celebrations of the day for Anne-Marie and I think everyone in Irish mm. athletics was delighted for her and the, the great thing just to finish is brilliant success for those involved and then you look at one or two very very significant names who weren't there which is a reminder as well of the talent that is at Athletics Ireland's disposal yeah, for sure. I mean, no Kier McGeehan, she's been a scoring member before and obviously no Fanula McCormack, who has always been a scoring member. But yeah, this senior women's team, five times in the last 11 years, they have gone to the European cross country and come home with a medal. And for, you know, a relative minnow on the international stage like Ireland, to have basically returned with a senior women's medal 50% or so at the time almost is a truly astonishing achievement. And I think what was so unexpected this time is that I think if you even asked the athletes themselves, they'd have said, no, we're not getting tired. I think more people People were expecting the senior men to challenge for medal, but once again they stepped up when it counted, especially Ailish and Roisin Flanagan, the 11th and 12th, and then Mary Mulhare as well coming through for 27th. Outstanding stuff from them. Brilliant. Cahill, stay safe. Um, good luck over the coming days. I, I know you're only going to be an observer, but I tell you, I would not fancy braving the Antarctic the week before Christmas. So um, it's probably easier when you're running and have something to move around in. So um, good luck to you. Good luck to Sean. And listen, I have no doubt we will. Uh, You'll be tweeting and stuff. We'll be able to see picturesque pictures of what the Antarctic is like this time of the year. Absolutely, yeah. There's absolutely no phone coverage down there or Wi-Fi. But once I get, but once we get back to Chile and back in the, the working world, we'll be sure to update everyone and tell everyone how it went. Stay safe. Best wishes to everyone involved. Thanks so much for being with us, Carl. Cheers, take care. Colin with us there. Uh, it's, I tell you, you, you think you're going to chat to a fellow about the European cross countries in Italy and you end up talking about the Antarctic Marathon and Irish attempts at world records. Or public service broadcasting at its finest. Anyway, we are going to look ahead to the culmination of this FIFA World Cup after the break. Game on. Football. And you're very welcome back to the programme. It's soccer between now and seven o'clock before we make way uh, for better. We, uh, Paul Curry's with me in studio. We'll look ahead to the semi-finals in a second, but um, just reflections on the weekend. Like England against France was obviously the game that caught everyone's eye. The referee is the focus of so much attention afterwards to an extent, deservedly. But in terms of tactically how England approached that game, when Gareth Southgate watches it back, can you realistically look at anything that they could have done differently or could have done better? I think some of the some of the changes could have been questioned, Damien. You know, particularly taking Saka off when he when he seemed to have the better of, her, of Hernandez. But I, you know, when I when I kind of reflected on the game, I wasn't getting as caught up with. I know the English media and the press would have been with the performance. Yes, they dominated possession for large periods of of play, um, but there wasn't a huge amount in, in at the end of it in the final third and I don't remember them kind of carving France open on too many occasions yes as I mentioned Saka gave Hernandez a tired time and, and he's, he's won both penalties but in, in kind of general play they didn't really get in behind France a huge amount there was the Kane incidents in the in the first half when he rolled up in Meccano and he could have scored there but beyond that there wasn't a huge number of opportunities for England to actually kind of capitalise on I didn't think they kind of flooded the box with bodies when they got into dangerous areas Foden, Saka, Kane not a huge amount chances be between the three of them so on the balance of play like France weren't quite at it over the, over the course of 90 minutes but I kind of always had that feeling that if, if they were able to make a click um, and if they were able to kind of wrestle their way into the game that they were the team that were going to go on and create chances and if you look in the first 15 minutes when they started well they scored they had another spell just before Giroud scored and they capitalised on those moments and England didn't do that when they mm. were on top When we look at it like, and it's, the point has been well made over the weekend that there is so many of that squad who are at an age that they have two if not three tournaments in them still so there is a massive potential for England to push on and you know, reach finals or reach the latter stages the big question that seems to surround them is 
after all that he has achieved, is Gareth Southgate the man that has either the appetite or the freshness as a voice in the dressing room to, to drive on? And a lot of the signals seem to be very mixed in the last 24 hours. Yeah, he's brought them He's brought them so far and, and there is that major question around England. If you look at the last three tournaments now, the teams that they've had to play to get to the, the semi-finals and the final of both the World Cup and the European Championships, they never really had to play well there's a so-called tier one team the likes of a France a Spain a Brazil of Argentina when they've come up against that opposi- opposition they failed they lost against Croatia in the World Cup they went ahead against Italy in the European finals and they were pegged back and lost that game and once again like everybody expects them to get out of the group and they should have got out of, the, out of the group they beat Senegal as everyone would expect come up against France and they fall short again mm. so yes you can talk about the potential of the team but those players that they're talking about have been involved in the European Championships they've been involved in the World Cup and they're losing games like four eight years ago they were talking about Harry Maguire's being young Luke Shaw being young uh, Jordan Henderson being young it's the same conversation it's the same conversation they have a they have a tremendous um production line of players that they're able to bring through and playing at elite level but when it comes to big games big moments they're still losing games yes there's somewhat question mark about Gareth Southgate but it is the players at the at the end of the day mm. I wouldn't be surprised if he walked away I think mentally it would have been a huge drain those last three yeah. tournaments and th- there has obviously been a concerted campaign somewhere built around Stephen Gerrard because that is all the talk today is that he's the man who's in the wings and if you're looking at his CV well no, okay Gareth Southgate no it's not comparing like with like because Southgate kind of landed in the role you know unbeknownst to himself um, but if, if Gerard is the answer I'm not quite sure what the question the English FA um, would be answering just a word on France like they are a joy to watch and you do get that sense unlike Brazil unlike Argentina perhaps unlike other teams that have come up against bigger opposition and have fallen short is there a sense almost in a way that they're almost still playing within themselves and if they needed another gear they have a gear or two to go I think so and, and particularly in, in the final third like that Mbappe Griezmann Dembele and Giroud combination is so lethal there was much made about Benzema when he you know failed to, to recover from his injury in time Giroud probably gives them a bit more balance in that final third and there seems to be great combina- combinations between those four when Mbappe's not firing you could see the other night Griezmann absolutely ran the show from the middle of the park and he was able to bring different people into the game at different times at different positions and one thing that they have in abundance that probably the likes of an Argentina or Croatia don't have is pace out wide um, Dembele is, is lightning going forward a lot of question marks about him and his time at Barcelona but when he's in a French jersey he's so good going forward Mbappe on the other side is also so threatening going forward and when it clicks it looks so good there seems to be such fluidity between the, the four of them that the combinations are there that they can lock teams whether they go down the side or through the middle and when it clicks and when it, when it comes off it looks so good and I think they're probably a little edgy in, in the fullback positions but kind of through the spine of the team Rabio, Tushemi, Upamecano, Varane it's very very solid too uh, Before the, the clock ticks away from us um, like we're, we're here I'll tell you what we'll look ahead to the semi-finals um, like Argentina-Croatia tomorrow you've got you know the meeting of a great South American um, superpower against a European team that have been there or thereabouts for the last couple of years um, like again and we talked about it on Friday all of the romance is around Messi and going on to win the World Cup and finishing his World Cup career on a high, um, like th- that is that's very difficult to call because you've got two completely contrasting styles of football. And as we touched upon at the start of the program, a Croatia team that just seemed to have the doggedness in them to get 
results and grind teams down they're very very stubborn and to be fair to to Argentina you could probably say the same about about themselves you know they have been in knockout football Damien since they were beaten by Saudi Arabia and they've managed to come through that relatively unscathed they've dealt with the pressures and they've seen very good going forward they've scored two in each each of those games and it's been a good spread of goals it's not just been Messi likes of Alvarez Molina the other night um, have all chipped in as well as has McAllister so there's goals and there's confidence within those players I just think that when, when they go forward and with the form that Messi's in the way he's able to bring players into the game he's able to see passes he's able to carve op- teams open like that touch back three the other night is, is going to be difficult to replicate if yeah. you look at Van Dijk Ake and Timber they were very solid going into that game the pass that he sees the way that he's able to carve teams open if he's honest and if he's added against Croatia you could see him opening them up and at the back to be fair to them when they play that back three of uh, Martinez Otamendi and Romero certain question marks about each of them individually but when they play as a pair they're very stubborn they're very hard to find space in behind and if there's one thing that will get at them it's pace and that's probably one thing that Croatia lack in that final okay. third so Argentina to nudge it for you yeah Argentina for me I mean the fans there the, the atmosphere they bring the quality they've shown and, and the way they've dealt with situations I, I think they're going to have enough to get it, um, get past them and then Morocco up against France like Morocco are the story of the tournament and like we touched upon they have no pressure on them um, they are a team that can just go out and I won't say enjoy it but you know they have massively overachieved already relative to what expectation most people would have had upon them but the big issue France have is how do you score against a team that have provided this defensive resilience you know what I'm trying to say Um, like I think the only goal that they've conceded has been a penalty Mm. and an own goal at some point in the manager's reign like it is phenomenal what they have done yeah it's incredible and I mean Saiz has been very pivotal to that whether or not he's able to recover from that hamstring injury that he's picked up um, in the round of 16 and he carried into the Portugal game remains to be seen and, and if he was to drop out that might kind of impact that back forward that they play Amrabat has been superb and to be fair to them going forward you know they're very, very capable of soaking up pressure they're probably not getting the credit they deserve when they go forward I think Ziyech has been very good uh, Nasiri and Buffal that front three can cause teams problems when they counter because they go at such pace but if you ask me Damien just when you look at the French I think they'll play with an energy and a creativity and probably more of a, a potent threat than than Portugal did and Spain they were probably a bit passive in their play and maybe a bit complacent about how they went about their business I think the French can go down the go down um, out wide and they can cross they've got the likes of Giroud who's so good in the air and I think Mbappe and Dembele the form they're in I think they'll find opportunities to carve Morocco open and I think the you know just the, the toll that the last two games against Portugal and Spain will maybe just be too much okay. of a pass to go again. So Argentina-France final then in your head. The man celebrating next Sunday afternoon at around five o'clock or whatever it will be, Messi or Mbappe? The head tells me Mbappe, the heart says Messi. Uh, everyone, I've, I've, yeah... We're gone. We're all. We're gone too romantic. There's no I think place France. for romanticism. No, I, I think okay. France. I think the one thing you know, Argentina game management. They looked a little ropey against Australia. They looked a little ropey in the last couple of minutes against against Holland, and also in the Saudi Arabia game when they went one 0 up. So that would be the one question mark I have. I think France probably haven't shown those frailties, and the experience of winning it last time out. I think they've just got that bit more okay. quality very briefly to finish with real football the League of Ireland fixtures for the first round announced today I'm not a fan of the champions playing away from home on the opening weekend but I'm told Talon might not be available so Shamrock Rovers away to Sligo Rovers at Cork at home to Bowes Dundalk against UCD Shells against Drogheda Pats against Derry City in the women's Premier Division the champions uh, Shelburne are at home to Cork City as a playing group 
do you pay any attention to this when they come out? No, I, I don't think so. I think <laughs> they're looking at the dates and thinking, get me through pre-season exactly. because there's yeah. there's some difficult so, weeks ahead. But some tasty fixtures there. Pats and Derry be, be a good one first week. Yeah, it'll be the 17th of February before we know it. Uh, Paul Curry, thank you for your time uh, as always. Thank you to Laura Lee Davies, who was our broadcast coordinator. The programme produced by Ronan Lawler. Bed is on the way from us until we chat again. Good night. RTE 2FM.